Section 15 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 4, Verses 1 to 6. Baptism and its True Position, Our Lord's Human Nature. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, Chapter 4, Verses 1 to 6. When, therefore, the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There are two sayings in these verses which deserve particular notice. They throw light on two subjects in religion, on which clear and well-defined opinions are of great importance. We should observe, for one thing, what is said about baptism. We read that Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. The expression here used is a very remarkable one. In reading it we seem irresistibly led to one instructive conclusion. That conclusion is, that baptism is not the principal part of Christianity, and that to baptize is not the principal work for which Christian ministers are ordained. Frequently we read of our Lord preaching and praying, once we read of his administering the Lord's Supper, but we have not a single instance recorded of his ever baptizing anyone. And here we are distinctly told that it was a subordinate work, which he left to others. Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. The lesson is one of peculiar importance in the present day. Baptism, as a sacrament ordained by Christ himself, is an honorable ordinance, and ought never to be lightly esteemed in the churches. It cannot be neglected or despised without great sin. When rightly used, with faith and prayer, it is calculated to convey the highest blessings. But baptism was never meant to be exalted to the position which many nowadays assign to it in religion. It does not act as a charm. It does not necessarily convey the grace of the Holy Spirit. The benefit of it depends greatly on the manner in which it is used. The doctrine taught and the language employed about it, in some quarters, are utterly inconsistent with the fact announced in the text. If baptism was all that some say it is, we should never have been told that Jesus himself baptized not. Let it be a subtle principle in our minds that the first and chief business of the Church of Christ is to preach the gospel. The words of St. Paul ought to be constantly remembered. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. When the gospel of Christ is faithfully and fully preached, we need not fear that the sacraments will be undervalued. Baptism and the Lord's Supper will always be most truly reverenced, in those churches where the truth as it is in Jesus is most fully taught and known. We should observe, for another thing, in this passage, what is said about our Lord's human nature. We read that Jesus was wearied with his journey. We learn from this, as well as many other expressions in the Gospels, that our Lord had a body exactly like our own. When the Word became flesh, He took on Him a nature like our own in all things, sin only excepted. Like ourselves, He grew from infancy to youth, and from youth to man's estate. Like ourselves, He hungered, thirsted, felt pain, and needed sleep. 
he was liable to every sinless infirmity to which we are liable in all things his body was framed like our own the truth before us is full of comfort for all who are true christians he to whom sinners are bid to come for pardon and peace is one who is man as well as god he had a real human nature when he was upon earth he took real human nature with him when he ascended up into heaven we have at the right hand of god a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities because he has suffered himself being tempted when we cry to him in the hour of bodily pain and weakness he knows well what we mean when our prayers and praises are feeble through bodily weariness he can understand our condition he knows our frame he has learned by experience what it is to be a man to say that the virgin mary or any one else can feel more sympathy for us than christ is ignorance no less than blasphemy the man christ jesus can enter fully into everything that belongs to man's condition the poor the sick and the suffering have in heaven one who is not only an almighty saviour but a most feeling friend the servant of christ should grasp firmly this great truth that there are two perfect and complete natures in the one person whom he serves the lord jesus in whom the gospel bids us believe is without doubt almighty god equal to the father in all things and able to save to the uttermost all those that come unto god by him but that same jesus is no less certainly perfect man able to sympathize with man in all his bodily sufferings and acquainted by experience with all that man's body has to endure power and sympathy are marvelously combined in him who died for us on the cross because he is god we may repose the weight of our souls upon him with unhesitating confidence he is mighty to save because he is man we may speak to him with freedom about the many trials to which flesh is heir he knows the heart of man here is rest for the weary here is good news our redeemer is man as well as god and god as well as man he that believeth on him has everything that a child of adam can possibly require either for safety or for peace notes john chapter four verses one to six verse one when therefore the lord knew etc the connection between this chapter and the last will be found at the twenty-fifth verse of the last chapter the controversy between john's disciples and the jews was the means of calling public attention to our lord's ministry it became a subject of common conversation and attracted the notice of the principal religious teachers of the jews phys the pharisees they had already been disturbed by the ministry of john the baptist and the crowds which attended it john chapter one verses nineteen to twenty eight the deputation which they sent to john had been distinctly told by him that one greater than himself was about to appear when therefore the pharisees heard that jesus was actually baptizing more disciples and attracting more attention than john we can well imagine that their minds would be even more disturbed than before a vague uncomfortable feeling would arise in their hearts that this mysterious person who had cast out of the temple the buyers and sellers in so miraculous a manner and was now baptizing so many disciples might possibly be the christ and then would come the attendant feeling that if this was the christ he was not the christ they expected or wanted the result of both feelings would probably be a bitter enmity against our lord and a secret determination if possible to settle all doubts by putting him to death in what manner our lord knew what the pharisees had heard we need not be careful to inquire 
possibly he knew it from information obtained by his disciples we can hardly doubt that some of them kept up intercourse with their old master john the baptist and so learned what was going on at annon it is more probable that he knew it from his omniscience as god we are frequently told that he knew the thoughts of his enemies and acted and spoke accordingly it is good for us all to remember that nothing is spoken talked of or reported among men however secretly which christ does not know verse two though jesus himself baptized not etc the fact that our lord did not actually administer baptism with his own hands is only mentioned here in the gospels and is noteworthy it shows at any rate that what is done by christ's ministers at christ's command in the administration of ordinances is regarded as done by christ himself the preceding verse says that jesus baptized while the present one says that he baptized not lightfoot remarks it is ordinary both in scripture phrase and in other language to speak of a thing as done by a man himself which is done by another at his appointment so pharaoh's daughter is said to nurse moses and solomon is said to build the temple and his own house so david took saul's spear and cruise meaning abishai by david's appointment first samuel chapter twenty six verse twelve the reasons assigned for our lord not administering baptism with his own hands are various lightfoot mentions four one because he was not sent so much to baptize as to preach two because it might have been taken as a thing somewhat improper for christ to baptize in his own name three because the baptizing that was most proper for christ to use was not with water but with the holy ghost four because he would prevent all quarrels and disputes among men about their baptism which might have arisen if some had been baptized by christ and others only by his disciples to these reasons we may add another of considerable importance our lord would show us that the effect and benefit of baptism do not depend on the person who administers it we cannot doubt that judas iscariot baptized some the intention of the minister does not affect the validity of the sacrament one thing seems abundantly clear and that is that baptism is not an ordinance of primary but of subordinate importance in christianity the high-flown and extravagant language used by some divines about the sacrament of baptism and its effects is quite irreconcilable with the text before us as well as with the general teaching of scripture see acts chapter ten verse forty eight first corinthians chapter one verse seventeen verse three he left judea etc the context of the preceding verses seems to show that this movement was intended to avoid the designs of the pharisees against our lord if he had remained in judea he would have been cut off and put to death before the appointed time he therefore withdrew into the province of galilee where he was further off from jerusalem and where his ministry would attract less public notice our lord's conduct on this occasion shows us that it is not obligatory on a christian to await danger to life and person when he sees it coming and that it is not cowardice to use all reasonable means to avoid it we are not to court martyrdom or needlessly to throw our lives away there is a time for all things a time to live and work as well as a time to suffer and to die whether some of the primitive martyrs would have acted as our lord did here may be questioned their zeal for martyrdom seems sometimes to have partaken of the character of fanaticism verse four he must needs go through samaria many pious and profitable remarks have been made on this expression it has been thought to teach that our lord went purposefully and out of the regular road in order to save the soul of the samaritan woman it admits of grave question whether this opinion is well founded 
there was no other way by which a person could conveniently go from judea to galilee except through samaria the expression therefore is probably nothing more than a natural introduction to the story of the samaritan woman the first in the train of circumstances which led to her conversion was the circumstance that jesus was obliged to pass through samaria on his journey towards galilee this accounted for his being with a samaritan woman verse five then cometh city called sychar the common opinion is that the city here spoken of is the same as sychem or shechem genesis chapter thirty three verses eighteen and nineteen few places in palestine after jerusalem have had so much of bible history connected with them here god first appeared to abraham genesis chapter twelve verse six here jacob dwelt when he first returned from padan aram and here the disgraceful history of dinah and the consequent murder of the shechemites took place genesis chapter thirty four verse two etc here joseph's brethren fed their flocks when jacob sent him to them little thinking he would never see him again for many years genesis chapter thirty seven verse twelve here when israel took possession of the land of canaan was one of the cities of refuge joshua chapter twenty verses seven and eight here joshua gathered all the tribes when he addressed them for the last time joshua chapter twenty four verse one here the bones of joseph were buried and all the patriarchs were interred joshua chapter twenty four verse thirty two acts chapter seven verse sixteen here the principal events in the history of abimelech took place judges chapter nine verse one etc here rehoboam met the tribes of israel after solomon's death and gave the answer which rent his kingdom in two first kings chapter twelve verse one here jeroboam first dwelt when he was made king of israel first kings chapter twelve verse twenty five and finally close by shechem was the city of samaria itself and the two hills of ebal and gezerim where the solemn blessings and cursings were recorded after israel entered canaan joshua chapter eight verse thirty three a more interesting neighborhood it is difficult to imagine whichever way the eye of a wearied traveller looked he would see something to remind him of israel's history it is only fair to say that one of the latest travellers in palestine dr thomas author of the land and the book doubts whether sychar and shechem really were the same place he grounds his doubt on the fact that the well now called jacob's well is two miles from the ruins of shechem and that close to these ruins are beautiful fountains of water he thinks it highly improbable that a woman of shechem would go two miles to draw water if she could find it close by he therefore thinks it more likely that a place now called asgar which is close to jacob's well must be the ancient sychar and that sychar and shechem were two different places the subject is one on which it is impossible to attain a conclusive decision whether the ruins now called the ruins of shechem are really on the site of the ancient shechem whether the well now called jacob's well is really the well spoken of in this chapter whether ancient shechem may not have been nearer the well than it now appears are all points on which after eighteen hundred years have passed away it is impossible to speak positively it ought however to be remembered that the opinion of most competent judges is almost entirely against dr thompson's theory moreover it is worth noticing that the samaritan woman's words neither came hither to draw seem to imply that she had to come some distance to jacob's well when she drew water near parcel ground jacob joseph the ground here spoken of seems to consist of two parts one part was bought by jacob of hamar shechem's father for a hundred pieces of silver genesis chapter thirty three verse twenty nine 
the other seems to have been his by conquest when his sons slew the shechemites for dishonoring dinah genesis chapter thirty four verse twenty eight and chapter forty eight verse twenty two let it be carefully noted that st john here speaks of jacob and joseph and the events of their lives as if the history contained in genesis was all simple matter of fact it is always so in the new testament the modern theory that the histories of the old testament are only fables destitute of any foundation in fact is a mere baseless invention without a single respectable argument to be adduced in its favor verse six jacob's well it is not known how or when this well received its name in genesis we find mention of abraham and isaac digging wells but not of jacob doing so all we know about it is what we read in the chapter before us a well called jacob's well is still shown to all travellers in palestine near the ruins of shechem and is commonly supposed to be one of the oldest and most genuine remains of ancient times in the holy land in fact there seems no reason for disputing the common belief that it is the very identical well at which our lord sat and held the conversation recorded in this chapter it is in good preservation and about thirty yards deep wearied with his journey this expression deserves notice it shows the reality of our lord's human nature he had a body like our own subject to all the conditions of flesh and blood it shows our lord's infinite compassion humility and condescension when he became flesh and came on earth to live and die for our sins though he was rich he became poor he who had made the world and whose were the cattle on a thousand hills was content to be a weary traveller on foot in order to provide eternal redemption for us we never read of jesus travelling in a carriage and only once of his riding on a beast it supplies the poor with the strongest argument for contentment if christ was willing to be poor we may surely be willing to submit to poverty men need not be ashamed of poverty if they have not brought it on themselves by misconduct it is disgraceful to be profligate and immoral but it is no sin to be poor finally it shows believers what a sympathizing saviour christ is he knows what it is to have a weak and weary body he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities when our work wearies us though we are not weary of our work we may confidently tell jesus and ask him for help he knows the heart of a weary man sat thus on the well the general meaning of these words is that our lord sat down on the stones which according to eastern custom formed a wall or battlement round the mouth of the well the particular meaning of the word thus in the sentence is a point that has perplexed commentators in every age and will perhaps never be settled some think as de dieu a clark and schleusner that thus is a polonism or elegant expletive and redundancy in the greek original and that although a greek would see a meaning in it as giving a finish to the sentence it has no special meaning that can be attached to it in the english translation some think as chrysostom theophylact euthymius musculus bengal glacius and wordsworth that thus means just as he was without any regular seat without looking for any convenient position without any pride or formality not upon a throne not upon a cushion but simply on the ground some think as dotteridge that thus means immediately and find a parallel for it in acts chapter twenty verse eleven some think as calvin lightfoot dyke bullinger beza parkhurst steer alford and Burgon, that thus refers to the weariness just mentioned jesus being wearied sat down on the well accordingly after the manner and according to the fashion that any weary person would sit he was weary and so he sat on the well 
the question is one that i feel unable to settle the last meaning seems to me on the whole the most probable one although it fails to carry complete conviction with it the use of the word so in acts chapter seven verse eight is somewhat like it the greek word for so in that case is the same as the one here rendered thus Burgon remarks on this sentence that jacob and moses each found his future wife beside a well of water and here it is seen that one greater than they their divine antitype the bridegroom takes to himself his alien spouse the samaritan church at a well likewise quiznell remarks the rest of jesus christ is as mysterious and full of kindness and beneficence as his weariness it is a great matter for a man to learn how to rest himself without being idle and to make his necessary repose subservient to the glory of god it was now about the sixth hour what time of the day was this according to our calculation of time by far the most common opinion is that the sixth hour here means twelve o'clock the hottest and sultriest time of the day it is notorious that the jewish day began at six o'clock in the evening our seven o'clock was their one o'clock and their sixth hour would be our twelve o'clock it is however only just and right to say that some commentators as wordsworth and Burgon, maintain strongly that in st john's gospel the jewish mode of reckoning the hours of the day is not observed they say that writing later than the other evangelists and in asia minor st john uses the roman or asiatic method of reckoning time and that the roman mode was like our own they say therefore that when the disciples followed jesus john chapter one verse thirty nine at the tenth hour it was ten o'clock in the morning and when the fever left the ruler's son at the seventh hour it was seven o'clock in the evening john chapter four verse fifty two they say that when pilate brought forth jesus to the jews on the day of the crucifixion at the sixth hour john chapter nineteen verse fourteen it was six o'clock in the morning and finally they say that when jesus in the passage before us sat wearied on the well at the sixth hour it means six o'clock in the evening moreover they plead in support of their view that it is infinitely more likely that a woman would come to a well to draw water at six o'clock in the evening than at twelve o'clock in the day in genesis it is distinctly said that the evening is the time that the women go out to draw water genesis chapter twenty four verse eleven these arguments are undoubtedly weighty and ingenious and the matter is one that admits of doubt nevertheless for several reasons i am disposed to think that the common view of the question is the correct one and that the sixth hour in this place means twelve o'clock in the day i purposefully omit the consideration of the other places where st john mentions hours in his gospel none of them seem to me to present any difficulty except the sixth hour in st john's account of the crucifixion that difficulty i shall be prepared to examine in its proper place i think then that the sixth hour in the text before us means twelve o'clock for the following reasons a it seems exceedingly improbable that st john would reckon time in a manner different to the other three gospel writers b it is by no means clear that the romans did reckon time in our way and not in the jewish way when the roman poet horace describes himself as lying late in bed in the morning he says i lie till the fourth hour he must surely mean ten o'clock and not four in the afternoon when the roman poet martial describes the roman day he says the first and second hours are employed by clients in attending levies and the third hour exercises the advocates in the law courts he surely cannot mean that roman law courts did not open until two o'clock in the afternoon about the custom of the asiatics i offer no opinion it is a doubtful point c 
it is entirely a gratuitous assumption to say that no woman ever came to draw water except in the evening there must surely be exceptions to every rule the fact of the woman coming alone seems of itself to indicate that she came at an unusual hour and not in the evening d last but not least it seems far more probable that our lord would hold a conversation alone with such a person as the samaritan woman at twelve o'clock in the day than at six o'clock in the evening the conversation was not a very short one there is little or no twilight in eastern countries the night soon comes on and yet on the theory i oppose our lord begins a conversation about six o'clock and carries it on till the woman is converted then the woman goes away to the city and tells the men what has happened and they all come out to the well to see jesus yet by this time in all reasonable probability it would be quite dark and the night would have begun and yet after all this our lord says to the disciples lift up your eyes and look on the fields chapter four verse thirty five this last reason weighs very heavily in my mind in forming a conclusion on the subject our lord appears to me to have reached a resting place for the middle of the day according to the eastern custom in travelling and to have intended staying by the well for a short time till the heat of the day was past the arrival of the samaritan woman at this hour of the day gave ample time for conversation for her rapid return to the city and for the coming of the inhabitants to the well i must say that i see a peculiar beauty and fitness in the mention of the sixth hour if it means twelve o'clock which i should not see so strongly if it meant six in the evening to my eyes there is a special seemliness and propriety in the fact that our lord held his conversation with such a person as this samaritan woman at noonday when he talked to nicodemus in the preceding chapter we are told that it was at night but when he talked to a woman of impure life we are carefully told that it was twelve o'clock in the day i see in this fact a beautiful carefulness to avoid even the appearance of evil which i should entirely miss if the sixth hour meant six o'clock in the evening i see even more than this i see a lesson to all ministers and teachers of the gospel about the right mode of carrying on the work of trying to do good to souls like that of the samaritan woman like their master they must be careful about times and hours and specially if they work alone if a man will try to do good to a person like the samaritan woman alone and without witnesses let him take heed that he walks in his master's footsteps both as to the time of his proceedings as well as to the message he delivers i believe there was a deep meaning in the little sentence it was about the sixth hour augustine thinks that the sixth hour here was meant to represent allegorically the sixth age of the world he says that the first hour was from adam to noah the second from noah to abraham the third from abraham to david the fourth from david to the babylonian captivity the fifth from the captivity to the baptism of john and the sixth the time of the lord jesus i can see no foundation for these things in the text if such interpretations of scripture are correct it is easy to make the bible mean anything End of section fifteen.